Welcome to a Whirly Bird Productions podcast with me, Helen Kirsten. We explore film finance and distribution, featuring insights from filmmakers, entertainment lawyers and industry experts. Welcome today um, to Gareth Ellis Unwin, um, Academy BAFTA award-winning producer and CEO of multi-award-winning Bedlam Film Productions. I love the name of Bedlam Film Productions, by the way. Best film production name. Um, Amongst your many credits uh, with Bedlam, you produced um, King's Speech, um, what the highest grossing British independent film of all time. That's amazing, um, including seven BAFTAs, Best Film, Outstanding British Film and four Academy Awards, including Best Film. Um, and more recently, you were head of film and animation at Screen Skills, supporting new filmmakers, working with professionals to identify what the industry needs how we keep moving forwards and giving giving us the skills that's needed for training and and strategy to support these so obviously now having reduced your career to three short paragraphs i would like to hear from you a bit about you know how how did you get started what's your own story with film well it's funny isn't it the uh, the factor of three comes in yet again because i always joke that my career to date has had the sort of classic film script three act structure so the first act of my career was I was a assistant director. So I did that, Helen, for 13 years um, and really enjoyed just working on a variety of content, varying levels of production in terms of budget, very varying jurisdictions around the world, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the second act in my sort of career history today has been setting up Bedlam with Simon Egan and going on to produce eight movies and probably about 50 hours of TV programming under under that banner. And then most recently, the third act, which always makes me worry because it's sort of like, am I coming to the end of it all? But the <laughs> third act has been the, the work that I've done around training and um, training and education. But all of that came about, you know, um, I won't say by chance, but by, by sort of... Um, <laughs> I think one of the funniest things whenever I'm talking on these things, everyone imagines that I had this preordained plan that was perfectly laid out. Well, what you I mean you didn't? You didn't have the grand plan. Okay. I'm making it up as I've go making it up as I go along for nearly 30 plus years now. And the truth is, if you want to work in the creative industries, you're going to have to be flexible and agile and it's not going to give you the uh, structured framework that you might enjoy in another sector. But you know, mm -hmm. the things that we might consider failings in our part of uh, our sector are also its benefits you know we we yeah. majority work for ourselves we majority run our own companies we majority get to pick and choose the projects that we're part of so you know with the lack of formal structure comes amazing freedoms and I'm just that sort of spirit where I actually enjoyed those those freedoms so yeah it wasn't it wasn't sort of preordained I mean I always had uh, a fascination with storytelling I, I, I loved film as a child I enjoyed going to the cinema and the first time I ever saw my dad cry was uh, watching E.T. Um, at Slough Odeon. You know, my mum used, used to take me to like the old Sinbad movies up at the Hemel Hempstead um, cinema when, when I was a kid and stuff. So I had a fascination around story and storytelling, but, you know, grew up in a part of the world that, albeit I was only six month, six miles down the road from Pinewood, didn't produce filmmakers you know my mum and dad weren't in the industry they were teachers I didn't have friends that whose parents were in the industry so you know and I remember even though I had a Saturday job I did actually have a Saturday job at Pinewood at the age of um, 13 where I basically swept the floors and emptied the bins but even though I had that that in I remember sitting down with my careers teacher at the age of 14 saying oh I want to I want to work in the movies and she just looked at me 
blank faced as if and she actually told me I wasn't academically bright enough, which was a bit of a, wow. a bit of a bitter pill to swallow. But yeah, it's the same careers advisor 23 years later that invited me back with my Oscar to celebrate the fact that I just produced the, Ooh, the film. So yeah. Yeah. Sweet um, moment. Not, not, not that I'd recommend harboring harboring grudges for 23 years. Um <laughs> but no, so it was it was a chance opportunity really. I, I sort of I'd never realized that I could professionalize what was a slightly hobbyist ambition. Um, you know, and it was when I took my sister down for her A-level interviews that I saw some media students at Weymouth College running around with cameras and a sound boom and other bits and got talking to them and found that you could actually go to college and learn this stuff. You know, I, because I'd left school before my A-levels, university was never really a, a, a trajectory that I was on, but further education was something that I could consider and, you know, I was just really enthused by the conversations I'd had with those those media students. And thankfully, you know, I got I actually on that day, got to meet Paul Casper, who was the head of media. He pretty much offered me a space on the spot, which was quite cool. And Brilliant. it was the start of the education piece. And I, I went from there where I did a national diploma, a BTEC national diploma in media to go on to do a high national diploma at Ravensbourne, um, which I was there in the early 90s and graduated from Ravensbourne knowing how to work a photocopier and make a cup of tea and that was the two essential These skills are key skills for life and still and still yes. there, there is nothing <laughs> there is nothing that a crew member likes more than a, a than a brew made by me because it just you know yeah you need to be able to keep those skills up so Maybe. I find it quite funny when I'm on these sort of panels looking to sort of reflect on what's now a it is actually this year it's a 30 year 30 year career in the industry um you know, that there wasn't a master plan, there wasn't this preordained sort of roadmap to follow. And I think that, you know, a lot of filmmakers, young, old, and both in between, put themselves under so much pressure to try and get it all right. Um, And that there's a, you know, there's a plan that can be followed. And, you know, yes, there are some easy things to avoid, which we'll touch on. And I know we're going to talk about that through today's podcast, but, you know, the, the key things are remaining resilient and remaining um, agile in your thinking to be adaptive. You're never going to quite know when that next opportunity might arrive. And it's, yeah, remaining open to those opportunities and seeing them for what they might be. So, yeah. So on that sort of note of the changes, the challenges, that resilience, um, you know, what what are you noticing as a producer is is around you and has been happening that maybe is 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 affecting you and what you do what what what's the sort of bigger picture for producers like yourself at the moment well i think let's um let's talk to the slightly uh the important areas of mental health and um equity access and diversity you know i've seen change in the 30 years i've been doing are we there no have we got as far as we need to go no but i do see positive changes that have happened in the workplace in the time I've been here. And look, I, I sit here as someone that 10, 15, 20 years ago maybe wasn't making the right recruitment decisions in terms of where I was looking for talent or the stories that I wanted to tell. So, you know, I, I think there's an admission of guilt that we of my generation have to accept that we weren't getting it right 20, 30 years ago. And that's led to the the some of the challenges we have now. So I do think that we're seeing change. I see I think we are seeing opportunity shift. I think we are starting to hear voices that previously have been unheard. And that's all for the betterment of the industry. I think it makes us stronger. Um, I think 
the workplace is getting kinder. You know, I remember the sort of brutalist regime that I trained under, which was very aggressive, very full of toxic masculinity and, you know, just a tough place to to survive. And, you know, when you are working freelance and working all manner of hours and putting your love, sweat and tears into something to be in a very sort of hostile and aggressive environment is is really tough. So, again, don't claim that we're, we're we've, we've we've got there yet, but we're definitely seeing a change. And so, for example, you know, one of the little things to give an, uh, an exemplar of that. So I recently conducted a big training exercise at Shinfield Studios where we had 95 strong crew that was a mix of local students and local residents, you know, come together to do a short film over the over the course of three days run under professional and professional sort of working practices and it was the first time I was able to instill this and what we did at the start of the day as you'll probably know the first thing that you do when the crew all comes together is you do a quick health and safety chat you know don't trip yeah. over just don't plug things in that you Slips, don't trips and falls do. everyone exactly. all that stuff and we always pay so much attention to the physical safety aspect of filming this was the first time I was actually able to insist that we spent five minutes at the start of the shoot talking about our mental health and well-being for the shoot so I established my ground rules as a producer I didn't expect there to be any shouting there was going to be no tolerance of bullying behavior mm. um, if anyone had a concern then these were the reporting lines to follow and it was just interesting to see physical health and safety put alongside mental health and well-being so in important. five minute chat and everyone the amount of the crew that came even the professional crew even the heads of department yeah. they said that's the first time we've seen that on a set and we like that it's oh, amazing know, just I don't think I've the, ever seen that actually. You know, that permission to have that need and that that respect, you know, yeah. it's sort of like it lays it out, it's visible. Yeah. It's yeah. Oh, brilliant. Because I think I think one of the challenges is is the bullying behavior and being in an aggressive environment and typically masks your opportunity to establish your requirements of your crew. You know, if you're being very mm. simple, you're saying, look, you have the right to come to work, be treated fairly, enjoy your time at work and go away as mentally well as you arrived. But whilst you're here, I expect excellence. You know, that's simple. I just need you to be the best of you. I want you to absolutely deliver your A game. I'll create the environment that's exactly. safe and caring, but let's fly together. Let's, you know, no pun intended, considering the, the project that I'm, I'm going to talk about later on. But yeah, yeah let's, let's get the best out of people. And I always found that, as an AD, as an assistant director, you know, it was always better to sort of nurture and support than to shout, you know, and I just think that that's sort of trickled into how I produce things. But I think, you know, fundamental change, trying to keep it brief, because I know that this, you know, we're not, not here for a three hour chat. You know, I think the workplace is improving in terms of access, equity, diversity, and also kindness once there. But we have to recognise that we're not not fully there yet. We have to talk about the streamers if we're going to talk about sort of a, a shift in the ecosystem over the last 10 years. Um, I think that's a that's a big thing. And I know we're going to talk about that specifically. Yeah. And then lastly, I, I think just uh, I'm seeing a greater spread of stories that are being told. You know, if you to look at this year's BAFTA nominations, for example, which which have just been announced. I know there's once again a lot of contention over representation in certain key categories and also the story. But if you actually just look at the types of stories that are being told this year in terms of what's being um portrayed, represented, you know, it's a really eclectic mix. And I think that's what gives me a lot of encouragement going forward is that, you know, we've been telling stories through the medium of film for 120 years, and yet we can still 
come up with unique stories that are a, a clever way of telling something or feels more modern or you know there's just this is the the vibrancy of what we do for a living you know yeah it's, it's always evolving isn't it and I think that's that is our you know that is our challenge and our gift to, to to keep up with that change to do things that are different to 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 listen and to be observant of the world around us so that we are reflecting that world and we are bringing it into our work and and the people mm. like you've described are, are doing that importantly and being represented so yeah just to pick up on that thing of you know how for example with with the streamers what's that what does that mean in terms of your role how is that impacting the work that you do and are there you know, and I'm sure with anything, there's there's pros, cons, and and something in between. What what's your feeling about that? Well, look, let's let's start with the positives for sure. You know, the 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 arrival of the streamers was the shot in the arm that the content creation system really really needed. You know, we were starting to get into an overly traditional way of assessing projects and the value of a story. Um, we were in a place where the stranglehold on the commissioning was getting ever ever tighter and tighter and smaller and smaller. And, you know, what, what the joy of the streamer boom gave us was that there was suddenly a number of new players in the market that had a different approach to commissioning that were prepared to take risk and were prepared to sort of back projects to a financial level that had almost gone away in the independent sector. So, you know, I am not the sort of producer that's going to sit here and decry the arrival of the streamers as being the death knell for, for film production or other, you know, there's been a lot of money that's come into the sector via the streamers that are seeing great, great benefit. I think if we are going to look at some of the pitfalls associated with that, I think we have, although there's more money, in the sector um that money arriving has a very specific character and i think one of the challenges is the way that the streamer investment comes into a project where they take all worldwide rights all across the same you know across the world at the same time no easy further exploitation you're only ever mm -hmm. going to get what you get so, for yeah. example, you're not going to see a runaway hit like the the King's Speech. The King's Speech, you know, you mentioned highest grossing British independent of all time. That, I think, is a record that will last forever now mm -hmm. because of the way we fundamentally distribute content. You know, that will never change. You won't get a runaway hit like that because, you know, on a streamer deal, you've got your cost of productions that are covered. You've got an uplift against the cost of production, which means your investors, your financiers are happy because they've got a bit more of a secure investment, you know, but what is limiting about that is that you won't then see something play theatrically that suddenly gets a surge of support that that then sends a new set of values against all the further exploit exploitations of. So mm -hmm. I think whilst it shows great benefit, um, you know, the limiting thing is that you're not going to get the same level of runaway successes. You know, I think what's interesting about this, the, the, the streamer arrival is where we were, in a position where we had a given set of commissioners or studios that we could take content to for support, you know, we've now got some new ones, yeah. but they operate in a very, very similar way. I mean, a streamer deal is the same as doing a studio deal in my, in my mind, you know, you are pretty yeah. much doing most of your rights. You are giving over to a limited period of exposure where someone else will control the viewing figures, the income, the numbers. So yeah. I think it's it's just it's a different it's it's a different model of working, but has a lot of the sort of common tropes of the sort of the bigger studio world. Yeah. Um, but it's great that there are other there are other people to turn to. I mean, 
pre-streamers, you know, if you couldn't secure a British broadcaster in your finance plan for a British film, you were going to have a challenging time getting that film financed and set yeah. up. Um, so, so yeah, there's that. I think um, there being another positive around the, the trading arrival is that I think that they are prepared to give lesser experienced names a chance. I, I think I've seen yeah. that in all of them. You know, there has been directors given opportunity to work on bigger shows than they've maybe worked on before. You know, there are writers that are writing for streamer commissions that probably wouldn't get the same recognition if they were sort of looking at terrestrial broadcast or a more traditional studio deal. So I think all of those are are, are, are benefits. I think given what we're talking about here today, one of the, the downsides to all of this, and I think I'm starting to see it, I'm not seeing it clearly, but starting to see it is that the art of producing is becoming a very different thing. Yeah. You know, it's a single source financier. You know, if you can go and strike a Netflix deal or a movie deal or an yeah. Apple deal, you know, your ability to piece together other jurisdictions or other pieces of money or other forms of investment, the complexity or the art of producing is starting to fall away. Now, some might argue, yeah. great, you know, because yeah, it is I complex. Can't... It is difficult. It isn't something everyone can can yeah, achieve but with, successfully. But... But, but but within it, you have flexibility. You know, if I do, yeah. if I say I've got Project A, Project A, I go and set up with a streamer, and the streamer wants to take it all worldwide, all all worldwide, all rights for a two year period. I know that I'm I'm going to have, I'm going to find real difficulty in trying to get any value out of that project once their window has closed because yeah. everyone would have seen it. You yeah. know, so yeah. I'm not going to get you know, a, a physical, you know, physical is starting to come back. Physical sell through, sorry, home entertainment physical is something that's coming back now, you know, but if someone's been able to indulge. Do you mean like, project, sorry, DVDs? Like that, DVDs yeah. or, yeah. I mean, more modern, more modern, you know, digital digital packages that sit on a, sure. a server somewhere. But, you know, to, to buy and to own is starting to come back in, mm -hmm. you know, and if someone's seen a project sat on a streaming site for two years, chances are they probably would have been able to see it once, twice, three times. So what value is that going to have to sit on a server yeah. or to sit on a shelf? So we're, we're sort of, we're seeing that. So I think it's, you know, it definitely helps unsophisticated producers because it means that they can just go to a single source of financing and it's mm -hmm. a yes, no decision. Great. They're fully financed. If it's a yes, no, then they've got to find someone out. But I'm just sort of seeing a, a, you know, it's like I get we obviously get quite a lot of CVs and projects that come in to us and, yeah. you know, starting to see people's sort of referring to themselves as creative producers. It's like I've got an idea, I've got a project, um, but I'm a creative producer. I don't really understand the money side of things. It's like, right, well, being a producer means you have to understand the creative and the commercial because they're yeah. two sides of the same coin. If 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 you can't do one or the other, then you're not a fully fledged producer or a producer with a capital P, as I call it. Okay, it's not going to actually result in a product. No, gonna... no, it's, it's you're I'm a creative producer. Well, that that yeah. that that's great, you know. So, you know, and we get projects that come come to us, and it's like, oh, more of a creative producer can't really put it together. And it's like, okay, well, have you spoken to these streamers? And they say, yeah, we pitched it, and they didn't like it. It's like, right, well, yeah, that, you know, that, that tells you something important. That tells you something. <laughs> yeah. you know? So, you know, I, I, so I remember, it's funny, I'm, I'm preparing for a, a, a webinar that we're going to look back at one of my older projects, which is probably the most complex international co-production I've ever produced, which was a project called Zaytoon, mm -hmm. which was made, um, made in Israel in 2013. 
and it was a UK, French, Israeli, Palestinian territories. Wow. UK that is complex. Tripartite <laughs> uh, agreement. So the it was a, a, a three way three way co production with pre sold territories in each of the, and it was very very. I always remember the closing on that. So the closing is a period of time you go through when everyone's made their um, offers of support and you're trying to bring everything together so that it sits alongside each other. And you can go forward with what they call the IPA, the inter-party agreement. And the inter-party agreement is the thing that binds all of those that are putting money in. The collection account management agreement is the contract that defines everyone that's taking money out. So those two agreements become your most important closing documents, but they are all multi-party. So everyone that's part of that part of the process is a signatory. And you've got this sort of herding cats process of trying to get everyone. And of course, you know, no one wants to go first. No one wants to go last. There's a whole jockeying thing. Well, through the process of closing the finance on that film, we had to complete 73 individual agreements and contracts that all had to wow. be in by the time that we could consider ourselves formally closed. And I was literally sat by a fax machine because everything, for some reason, still had to be do, done by fax back in 2013. Yeah. Yeah. Sat there just, it was literally i mean in my the chapter in the autobiography if i ever get to write it will be yeah. called sign scan repeat you know <laughs> it, it, because i'd get a bit of paperwork in i'd sign it off and then that would go back out to the lawyers and stuff yeah um, and i you know we're just not seeing projects of that complexity come come together mm. and you know the the sad thing is is that means that films like say tune which you know, we've got to acknowledge the current political climate. You know, I probably couldn't get paid now. And I know that mm. there are many views on both sides of the argument that we're not going to get into on this podcast. But, yeah. you know, it was a unification story. It was a story of peace. And I don't think we would get the film away, A, because of its subject matter now, but B, because of just how complex it was to try and get it to close and to be Amazing. financed at, I think, what was it, $7.6 million. Wow. Uh, and is there was there a point in that process when when you know when you're not sure if it's all it's actually all coming in? Are you sort of are you you're waiting? I mean, uh, well, there's um, the benefit of when you're putting together an independent film and you are structuring it under a completion bond, you have the benefit of knowledge that the once closed, the money is there with certainty because everyone's done their due diligence. So but then you're if you're a good producer your worry then shifts elsewhere because it's like right okay now we've got the money are we spending it wisely are we doing it yeah. the best we can are we staying on budget are we staying on track so the, <laughs> the notion of there is a moment wherever the producer is completely relaxed <laughs> arm is no. a misnomer. <laughs> I mean the other thing is you know people have got to remember you know produce typically a producer's the first one on a project because they've either found the script found the idea found the director that they want to work with and they're also the last person on the project because mm -hmm. they're still doing the collection reports and and stuff so you know i've got films that i produced 16 years ago that once a year i still have to sit down and do the collection account mm -hmm. sort of verification and check that you know all the money that was due to be brought in has been brought in and that everyone's got paid what they're due to get paid, paid yeah. if anything so you know you have a long-lasting relationship with all of your projects that go far beyond just the you know pre-production production and post period you know it's it's a long-term yeah. thing um, but it's one of those things, you know, I've decried the fact that people send in a, you know, a note about, oh, I'm a creative producer. And that, in my eyes, is only half the business. But quite often people say, well, you know, what is it that a producer does? Because a producer in the structure of a film school or a university 
degree or on a short film is very different you know yes they'll raise a bit of money but chances are the producer is pretty much the the facilitator the enabler of the project to happen in terms of the the non-creative side so you know just keeping the show running management generally of yeah just general a general overseeing with maybe some involvement in the creative but you know a commercial producer as i am i mean you've got to remember you know, I pay my mortgage from the money I earn from making movies. You know, I yeah. make movies that, um, you know, cost money and need to be made effectively so that I can have a salary, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and when people say, oh, well, you know, what's the easiest way of describing the role of producer? I found my, my favourite sort of anecdote, metaphor, whatever the phrase is, is, um, you know, for example, if I go into a school and I'm talking about the role of producer to people that just have no idea how our industry works, I say, well, you know, a producer's like a property developer. Um, A property developer will see a parcel of land and they will know what that parcel of land is going to cost. The property developer will have an idea of whether they want to build some houses there, a factory there, a hospital there, and they will know the associated costs and timeline of building that, whether it's a block of flats, whether it's a estate of houses, whether it's a factory or whether it's a a hospital. And the property developer has to have a reasonable expectation that once they've spent the time, raised the money, built the property, that it's going to realise a market value. And that market to be significant enough to either make your return or make a profit. And a film producer is a, a, a producer is exactly the same, but the property yeah, that we is intellectual property. So I'll look at an idea. I'll know what it will cost for me to acquire the rights in that idea. I'll have a sense of how I want to develop that idea, whether for television, for film, for a game, for an app, whatever. Mm-hmm. I'll have an idea of the cost of production. I'll have an idea of the timeline of production. But I have to reasonably able to forecast with some certainty the market value of that entity once complete, because that's borrowing against, or that's what I'm, I'm, I'm selling the opportunity. Yeah, speculatively looking ahead and seeing, yeah. And there's typically, you know, there's, there's, there's three or four ways that you bring money into a film. And, you know, I always, I always try and encourage directors, producers, writers, every crew member, you can make whatever film you want. Yeah. At whatever cost you want, as long as you've got the money. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> as long as you can as yeah. you, so you know and if you haven't got the money you're gonna to have to provide an audience because the audience is where you'll be able to drive money from so yeah. as soon as you need an audience and you want to tell a story that's going to cost you more than what you've got in your back pocket then you have to start thinking about things in commercial terms and i'd i you know the students that i work with the degree levels and master levels mm-hmm. i work with i mm-hmm. i try and encourage them to start thinking about that because even whilst on a course and whilst in education you have the blessing of being in a sheltered workshop you know your kit doesn't cost any money your time comes free the time of your peers to help you on that project all comes for free and yes you may go on into your post-education life and still get together groups of friends that have got their own kit and you can make something for nothing brilliant if you can afford to if you can make your content at no cost to anyone get out there tell your stories do it yeah because you've got no excuse as soon as you start to have to make things that means you're going to have to have proper cash money to go and make it you know whether that's feeding your crew or putting fuel in a generator or paying an actor to be on set for for a day you know once you start having to spend real money you have to see your projects as a commercial entity because they have value 
outside of the creative, outside of the storytelling, they have no commercial value until you can get someone to pay to want to to, to watch that thing. Yeah. So starting to to look at things in commercial terms, it isn't dirty. It's not something that we should. No, be it's of. just it's, real life. It's it's the reality life. of how to do it. You can't yeah. do it without it. If you if you want if you want to make art house movies that a very select group of people will want to go and see, absolutely brilliant. But make it yeah. for the money that they're going to want to pay to 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 to, to go and see yeah. it. You and you see people go to like kind of crowdfunding and stuff. And obviously they know then yeah. they've got that audience there that comes yeah. with that group of people. Yeah. And then, yeah, you've actually got someone. Crowdfunding crowdfunding's great. I've done three camp yeah. campaigns. Um, they've always been for development money, which development money is the hardest money to raise in mm. the industry. Yes. You know, and if you can get a couple of hundred like-minded people that are all prepared to put in 20, 30 quid, you know, and mm. follow you on your journey to to get something made, then then great. You know, crowdfunding is never going to make a movie much beyond a couple of hundred grand, you know, yeah. so you're never going to get a commercial hit in terms of one that plays in cinemas and, and the bigger festivals and gets on TV for, for that sort of number, you know. Yeah. Uh, but crowdfunding is a, a a reasonable means by which to raise a small amount of money. One thing that I, I, I would heartily recommend, having done three of them now, don't um underestimate how much work a professionally run crowdfunding campaign is yeah, you know you've got to keep it alive it. Yeah, yeah you know and people want updates people want content yeah. people want they're investing in it is a living breathing they're investing. yeah and it doesn't matter it doesn't matter whether someone's investing a pound or a million pounds you then have a responsibility to yeah. that investor to keep them informed to keep them up to date and to and to show them that you're 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 working. There's a lot of people that go, oh, crowdfunding. That's you know, that's just asking friends and family for a few quid. And it's it's not. It's bigger than that. But, but yeah. yeah, you've got that community there, and they're excited by it, and they want to find out, you know, what's happening. And um, yeah, I think you know, looking at sort of the bigger picture now of sort of independent film. You know, where where are we at for? for independent production in this country is, I mean, that's oh. a big statement to try and fulfill, but it's over to you, Gareth, you know, um, right. where, where, how do you feel things are for new indies or even any indies currently? Okay. Well, firstly, we have to reflect on the non-indie space, you know, before we start jumping sure. into the concerns. Okay. So look, following the strikes, um, we are about to see a production surge in the UK that will be, on par with, if not greater than, our recovery from COVID. The UK is going to get massively busy. You know, that is clear as the nose on my face. Um, that is going to be brilliant for all of the technicians and crew that have gone without work for the last nine months. Mm. And I have nothing but respect and compassion for those that have struggled through the last month, nine months. You know, I've got... Mm friends that are DOPs that have been delivery drivers for a podo to just get money in, you know, and there's, so there's no harm in that. And I think anyone that's standing up and moaning about the fact that we're going to get really busy is unfairly yeah. um, recognizing just how effing tough it's been for a lot yeah. of people for the last year. Um, so we're about to face this massive production surge. I'm of that. I'm confident. Mm -hmm. We're going to see a lot of inward investment. We're going to see a lot of US content, either restart the productions that they had underway that got put on pause because of the strikes or new content that's being created during the strikes. Because, you know, 
one of the things that we do as a creative community, we never sit on our hands. You know, no one's just had the last nine months off. Well, I'll qualify that. My, my own personally held views is that there are certain organisations in the UK that could have done a lot more during the strikes, but they they had nine months off. But most most creatives just kept on writing, kept on coming up with ideas, conceptualising, creating ideas and stuff. So I think for the inward investment market, things are looking very positive. You know, all those people with new studio space, I'm closely aligned with Shinfield Studios. I'm really pleased to starting to see more of the bookings coming in and, you know, oh, all of that sort of value chain around hiring company, you know, hire companies and stuff. That's going to be buoyant. And I'm really pleased, you know, yeah. they've gone through a drought. They deserve to have the boom period. Yeah. What that's going to do, unfortunately, is adversely affect and already under great pressure independent sector. Mm. So, you know, we have a number of fundamental challenges in the independent space at the moment. We have a very limited set of distributors in the UK that will pick up independent content. We're probably down to less than half a dozen now mm. um, of those that can actually re release a film of scale. You're probably talking a two or three. So, you know, the studios control the majority distribution opportunity in the in the in the UK, as do the the, the streamers. Um so point one is that we were under pressure anyway as the independent yeah. sector. Point two is um we are broken in terms of the way in which we bring money. Uh, non-traditional finance into the independent ecosystem, the lack of respect we show that money whilst it's with us and the unlikeliness of them ever recouping that money or seeing profit. We've behaved abysmally over the last 30, 40 years. Um, we just don't treat anyone's money with enough, the same respect. I've got, so for example, I have an investor in Bedlam who has also put money into uh, a, a phone-based app again. He gets his reporting daily. How many apps have sold? How many in-game purchases there's been? How much money his app has made on a day-by-day -day basis? You know, the reporting is clear and transparent. The money coming back out to him happens to him weekly. You know, there's no waiting for a year for an annual statement from a collection account to then find out that actually the money has already been spent. So the transparency that's lacking in the film recruitment and recovery spaces is shocking i mean no one would want it to go towards a regulated world i think that puts too much stricture around things but we've you know we've pretty much treated any inbound money that's non-traditional fairly poorly for a number of years now you know there are too many stories of people with money getting wasted abused and not used in the way that that they that they put it forward in you know, so we need to do a big cleanup campaign. So before we start crying to government that there's not enough money in the ecosystem, why don't we get our house in order? Why don't we find a better way of reporting? Why don't we find? So, you know, in this day and age where I know that Comscore can give me every ticket sale at the point at which that screening has started in that cinema and can report that back to my phone automatically, why does that have to then go up to a up to an exhibitor, from an exhibitor to a distributor, from a distributor to a sales agent, from the sales agent to the collection account, from the collection account management company down to me as a producer, where wow. I don't know until three to six months later how something's performed. So we've got we've got to just clean all of this up. If we don't, we can't ask for any more money from government. We can't ask for any more money from from the bigger investment groups. You know, I I have the benefit now of working with some very very high level investors, and 
you know, I've carried most of them with me through all of our, our Bedlam project. These are also the people that are being asked to invest in hotels, into restaurant chains, into clothing companies, all of those other sectors. They can clearly see how their money comes in, they clearly see how their money is spent. They can clearly see how their money is reported on. And yeah. until we clean up our act, I don't think we can ask for any more money from government or the investment community. So I think that's something that needs to happen. And who would who would drive that that cleanup? Who needs to kind of take that ownership to make that clear and, and more simple, transparent process? I think from a strategy perspective, it has to be BFI and PACT. You know, they are our, our appointed representatives in this regard. So I think they've got some heavy lifting to do. The problem is, is that it's an awkward conversation for them, because how do you how do you clean up the independent space without looking for? Um, a more positive alignment with the the non-independent space, you know, and no one, everyone, trust me, I've I've sat in rooms with these people. Everyone is fearful mm. of losing that in, inward investment. The UK Film Commission, Pact, BFI, you know, just look at the way that we're celebrating those big US studios mm. films shot here last year. Great, yeah. brilliant. Okay, but we paid as taxpayers twenty percent for them to be here. Yeah, now, exactly. no one wants to touch the tax reliefs, and there is mm. a question over whether we'll have the same government come next year at this mm. time. But the BFI Pact and uh, the British Film Commission really need to clean, help us clean up the act of the the independent space, and that means we've got to have some awkward conversations with our non-independent partners mm. and supporters. Yeah. So, so there's that. Um, but you know, it's not it's not all doom and gloom. The 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 the, the last thing I'd say is that. I am finding on my projects because I have a track record and because I operate in a transparent way and mm -hmm. I've got a good reputation. I'm funny that I'm finding that there is money in the marketplace to find Brilliant. Um, with an honest approach and a very practical approach, you know, and being clear about likelihoods of recruitment etc there is money in the in the manage those expectations <laughs> yeah i mean basically you know they're, they're you know it's been if you look at the period through covid and then the period through strikes you know people that like investing money in independent film haven't been able to invest money in independent film so there is a you know there is money there that f with the right investors and on the right project you can leverage so you know one of the projects that i've got that we're developing at the moment it's finding favor it's got a lot of positivity around it i've raised development funds against the work that we've had done over the last year and a half which included Amazing. shooting a proof of concept up at warner brothers which went really well mm -hmm. um year before last so you know the, the the money's out there but it just needs to be carefully carefully approached and then treated with respect when it arrives yeah i mean look, there's lot there's lots in there and and it does feel like you know, there's there are positives, and but it's it's. I suppose some of the people we're talking to is those new filmmakers. There's always yeah. that. Number one, you're learning. You're still growing. Yeah. You're you're figuring yeah. out the complexities, and they are complex from, from yeah. what you've just described. Um. So, do you feel like there's any sort of particular tips or red flags if you know if you were talking to yourself starting out now, but you had that benefit of the thing you can't get till many years later yeah. hindsight. Yeah. What would you, what sort of gems or thoughts or warnings might you put, sort of pass on? Okay, so firstly, you only ever get someone's attention um, fresh once. Mm -hmm. And what I am consistently disappointed by is when I get a project sent to me 
whether it's got a full script, whether it's conceptual, whether it's just a sort of pitch deck that is not fully developed. You know, mm -hmm. your time is your time. It only starts to cost money. It only starts to cost me money when I start looking at it. So, you know, one of the things don't ever do is to send something that you're not completely satisfied with to someone and then as soon as they criticize it go oh no no there's another script coming or oh no no well we didn't do you know what you know well yeah. jamie jamie's the one that's got good spelling and jamie wasn't around to do a spell check but we wanted to get it to you this weekend it's like no wait until jamie or whoever is there to do the spell check you know um too many ideas come to me way too early you know i I develop my own ideas. I'm quite happy to. So, for example, one of the things we've got going, you know, it goes back to a, a news item I saw eight years ago. I'm happy to, to put the time and effort into developing those ideas because they're mine. I don't want to develop your idea. If you're sending me an I, if you're sending me something that you want to partner with Bedlam to go and make, I'm not interested in developing it with you. You know, you should have got it to a point where you're ready to share it with me. Um, so a major pitfall is sending stuff too soon out of you know, youthful inexperience and optimism, but no, you know, things as basic as poorly formatted scripts, you know, for me to look at a script and think it's a script, it needs to look like a script. So if you haven't bothered to properly format it, that's an instant no for me. Um, making sure that the ideas are fully developed. Um, I don't look at things in a vacuum. I don't care how strong they are creatively. I have to know that there's an audience there for it. So, you know, and that audience has to, be in balance with the proposition. So, you know, if you're coming to me and telling me you're going to give me Star Wars, but you're somehow telling me it's only going to cost a million quid, I'm not going to believe you, you know? So finding that balance between concept and likely commercial realisation. And what sort uh, of evidence might you want sort of audience-wise? What is the information that sometimes be a, It can just sometimes be a few lines, you know, comps are always strong, you know, comparable films that have been made in a similar genre for a similar budget with a reasonable cast you know i typically in my pitch packs will include four or five comps and they will be both a creative and commercial comparison but don't quote me something that was made 20 years ago you know and definitely don't try and pitch me the next king's speech because that pisses me off i, I try not to use coarse language on these things but don't tell me you can do a king's speech because i know you probably can't because we barely didn't and also I've done one of those. Do you know what I mean? Um, so I think market awareness is a big thing, you know, so comparisons, you know, looking at who you're wanting to partner with and why are they a good fit? You know, I have a strong ambition to make horror film at some point. There's not one in my canon of work. And I've always promised to to my sister that before I stop producing, I'll make a proper shit your pants scary movie because she <laughs> liked horror. Um, this will probably now lead to me getting about 50 submissions for horror films. As I got, rewind uh, quick. Yeah, 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 I've got one that I'm developing. But, you know, looking at, you know, looking at the person that you're speaking to, track record, the type of content they create, you know, having a sense of, you know, maybe it's something that's going to be a bit different for them, but make sure that you can acknowledge that. You know, if someone sent me, I always like it, you know, the good version of an email for me is, um, you know, Dear Gareth, um, I recently saw XXX or I recently rewatched YYY, which I know you produced. I thought it was a, a good piece of work. You know, love a bit of flattery. Always kick off there. Good start. <laughs> connect, you know, connect. <laughs> yeah, I, ha I have a project that I've been developing for a little while. It's in such and such a genre. 
um, it sits at this sort of budget level. I think these audiences would be um, would be good, you know, would be good for it. You know, my elevator pitch is that it's X project meets Y project. And I think it's sort of in the same vein as, you know, a film three years ago called dot, dot, dot. Um, could I send you just a one page outline? Um, I don't want to read a script until you've sent me something much, much shorter. You know, I'd much rather get log line, which it typically shouldn't be many more than 25 words and a one page treatment to decide whether I want to read the script. Because what people don't realize when they submit a script, they sort of think, ah, oh, you know, fire in a script, Gareth will read it. It's, well, it's a couple of hours out of his life. Well, it's not. For me, reading a script, because I'll always read it twice, once for story, content and plot, and sorry, story, character and plot. And secondly, for just how do you do it from a sort of production perspective? So yeah. it's two reads. I don't yeah. read quickly because I make sure that I'm tr trying to properly absorb the script. So you're basically saying, I want a day of your life. Yeah. That Send me a script. You're saying, Gareth, I want a day of your life, which I'm not going to give you anything in return for, apart mm -hmm. from the fact you might want to pick up this project. So think about it in those, in those yeah. terms. You know, Who's it, reading it? Think about their time and their life yeah, and time what they've got. And, that, yeah. and again, <laughs> yeah. that then comes back to making sure that it's unique, you know, know your market. Um, quite often people will pitch me stuff and, and you know, it'll come via my assistant. I'll go, okay, well, that sounds like so-and-so that was done three years ago. It's amazing the amount of filmmakers that sort of think because they've had the idea for the first time, no one else has ever done it and they haven't bothered going to check. Yeah. You know, so I think if you've got an idea really work hard on trying to find out if anyone's done it before. And if they have, what's particularly unique about your take on it that's yeah. going to make it different, you know? So I think, you know, being ready to to share material only when it's fully developed, being cognizant of the fact that it is a time investment from the person that's looking at the project, if they're going to seriously consider it, um, and to have a sense of its commerciality or its marketability, you know, all of those things are, are really fundamentally important for me. Oh, that was just absolutely brilliant. Um, yeah, I think that's, you know, there's so many gems in there. I think people are going to be pausing these now, you know. You're going to get some emails that are going to have your statements in them coming through. You know that's that. Right. That's, that's <laughs> right. They'll, but they're going to be good. Up, they'll get picked up by someone else other than me. And then we'll <laughs> yeah. Okay, and then um, let's, be, let's be really, really honest and let's have a bit of fun with it. Make sure your idea is not shit because it is amazing <laughs> yeah. how, how, because you've been close to something for so long. yeah bad ideas suddenly yeah. become great in your own mind so yeah don't pitch it check, to your flat. check them out with other people it's like yeah, yeah those, other, those other reactions are so key aren't they they're telling Absolutely. you is this yeah. new does this surprise you have yeah. you heard this story does it do you care and pitching it to a family member who loves you dearly and will never say anything nasty to you because they're worried about hurting your feelings <laughs> is not a good audience you know go no. and find the, the sarcastic, toughest friend. That, Get your critical friend, as they say. Critical, critical friends in there, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Um, so, yeah, sort of, again, just sort of wrapping up a little bit. Can you, um, you know, last sort of thoughts about, you know, what you've got coming up? I know you've sort of hinted at a little bit about your your slate at the moment and what's going yeah. on. What's what's it, what's happening for you in the next little while? So the, 
Yeah, the front the front runner is uh, is is a project called Anything to Anywhere. Um, Anything to Anywhere was the motto of the Air Transport Auxiliary during the Second World War. Um, they were responsible for uh, delivering the new aircraft out from the factories and recovering the broken and damaged aircraft. Um, and what's of particular interest was in 1941 they started to induct female pilots that had never flown before. Amazing. So, those women would actually go on and be the first women to be afforded equal pay under UK employment law. Everyone thinks it's the women of yeah, Dagenham. Yeah, it's the Dagenham, yeah. No, it's the, it's the women of the ATA 1941 were the first to be afforded equal pay to their male counterparts. Amazing stories yeah. of heroism and just the, what they managed to achieve. And it's, you know, they are a group that's been majority airbrushed from history. Mm. So it's a strong female empowerment story. Um, I've met some of the women for real a number of years ago. Sadly, a few of them have now passed. Yeah. Um, we're in a good place. We, we shot proof of concept for the project. The script is well advanced. We're about to announce our director um, and start casting. So we're hopeful that we'll get a, a late summer shoot on, on that. And um yeah, that's something I'm really excited about. There's uh, a, a couple of so lots of good locations and and yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've I'm lived... imagining Spitfires and things. I'm seeing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I think I now know everyone in the UK that owns a owns a Spitfire, a Tiger Moth, <laughs> or anything else. I've basically spent the last six months scouring the UK for airfields and air bases and stuff. So, yeah, just doing all my my homework. Um, but yeah, we're hoping it's going to be excuse me, the female antidote to Masters of Air, uh, which obviously launches Amazing. soon. So, you know, and a perspective on conflict that we've not seen before, you know, women serving in a semi-frontline role um, yes. back as far as, as 1941. So, well, I'm so invested. You've got me. Brilliant. Any money? Have you ever considered in, investing in, in independent British... <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, we're piecing get that. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're we're piecing that together. We we've we had a successful round of investment that we ran with our development investors. So that's based on, you know, they put money in, and if the film sees production, they'll see an uplift against that initial investment. Um, but now we're looking at because it's a, I mean it's a twenty two million dollar film. You know, we're now looking at the more traditional sources. So I'm talking to the streamers. I'm talking to the distributors. Talking yeah. to the equity financiers, and you know, we will find a a sort of 3D jigsaw version of this, which brings all those partners in together and hopefully gets us to a close and we can Amazing. look to later, later this year. Um, and I'm not interested in seeing anyone's CVs to work on it yet. I need to make the film a reality <laughs> before I can hire anyone. Um, but yeah, watch this space. Incredible. Oh, honestly, it does sound fantastic. I'm actually, and it's it's like, it's that surprising it again. It's like that first telling of a story. You did it brilliant. You log line, you know, you've got your USP in there. I know. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I mean, look, a good got, example. I mean, if we've got just a, a couple of seconds before, yeah, we, before we wrap up, I mean, I could um, let me. So yeah, so so this is your this is your own pitch deck. Yeah, so this is something that we created to share with our development investors and now our, our sort of more traditional um, sources of film finance, and this gives you a level at which. You know, this is where Bedlam will develop a project to the point of being able to create something like this, this pitch deck. So um, anything to anywhere is the is the title of the the, the project. Um, and what I'm trying to achieve within the pitch deck is to give a sense of the sort of look and feel for the film. It's indicative of the film that we're trying to trying to make. Um Again, keeping the opening very succinct. I mean, that's the that's the logline, the untold story of the trailblazing women who delivered the planes that the RAF flew in battle in in World War One. Yeah. 
you know, first to receive equal pay. And yeah. their survival was worse than a British soldier in the trenches of World War One. So bang, bang, bang. As soon as you've started to read this, you know the world that we're inhabiting. Um, yeah. We are a visual medium, so my pitch decks have lots of large imagery. It's not lots of text. Um, you know, you have to outline the story. So there's literally just a couple of pages on what the story is. Again, finding imagery that is illustrative or or yeah illustrative of the film that you're trying to make and the show that you're you're trying to make yeah you get uh, a sort of emotional reaction to it you know you're able to sort of feel it and see it and envision and, and exactly. you know envision it yeah. yeah and and keeping it very visual um so i'm producing this alongside liz truebridge who is very well known for her work on downton abbey the film and tv series um, there's some stills from the test shoot that we did up at Warner's. Now, obviously, not everyone can take things as far as doing something like our little proof of concept. But, you yeah. know, again, showing the, the the project, a bit about the the writer and the casting director that we're, we're working with. All of this is, you know, commercially yeah. sensitive information. So I'm happy for it to go on the podcast, but not to be shared yeah. wider than that. That's again, fine. keeping the, keeping it sort of heavy on the imagery, Again, key partners, people that we're working with. We want it to be evocative of the, the the film that we're making. And then there was a big question as I started to talk to people about the aerial work. Well, they were saying, well, who's going to look after that? Because that's obviously a big part of the film. And yeah. playing picture company is someone that we're we're working with that will do all of the aerial photography. And this is oh, stuff that, that they've shot. And um, they've got an amazing way of sort of being intimate with the machine. You know, it, it sort of feels less mechanical and observational so yeah. john who's the who's the aerial director has just got this really intimate way of photographing things and then because we're based on a true life story we've included some pictures of the real oh, women there they you know, are. So, so so these were the the Beautiful. women of the ata so again you know it's it's um you know that's the level at which we would take something yeah. in terms of working up a, a pitch deck now people go we can't spend that sort of money we can't do something that glossy well Aim you, for similar, you know, how yeah, close to that can you, you get? Can you can find something illustrative, as you said, yeah. even if you can't shoot it, give me yeah. the, the impression of and the and the, the aesthetic and the feeling. and Yeah, you know, and go and, you know, go go and use some imagery that you found. Obviously, you have to be very careful how you use yeah, imagery and yeah. licensing and stuff, you know. Yeah. But, but, you know, I mean, it's something like, I mean, one of the great benefits I found, well, Simon and I found whilst we were at Ravensbourne, is it put us into a creative community where we could, access graphic designers we could access costume people we could access yeah, other get your collaborators yeah. you know get your collaborators together and you know it might be that there's some graphic designers that are at a uni or otherwise that might be prepared to do you a little bit of work for you know yeah. the price of a few beers or or, or or a nice dinner or a lunch or something so yeah yeah I'll always just try and keep that benchmark high but yeah that's that's how we develop stuff that was so and, helpful thank you so so much for your time today and for your you know your honesty and for what you shared and I've learned loads and I know people listening will have learned loads from you as well and like like I said you know you you can't learn it until down the line so it's yeah. always lovely to be able to hear those things and um yeah I appreciate your your openness and your yeah your kindness about what you've what you've said about encouraging yeah. people so yeah. thanks very much it's been a I mean, pleasure one just, one just one little thing just to leave yeah. you hope you get the scissors in and, and yeah you know I, yeah. I know when I'm being very honest about the situation over here it can seem a little bit doom and gloom but the truth is we are talking about uh, an industry that gives you an amazing opportunity to tell stories you know and yeah 
I always try and encourage people to, you know, that it's going to be a challenge. You have to remain resilient, do your groundwork, do your market appraisal, you know, but the one thing that the pandemic proved is that we remain as a, as a world hungry consumers of content. We love stories. We love content. And, you know, that appetite only ever grows. And that means that our need to supply that hungry beast ever grows. So whilst it might be challenging, difficult, tough, hard, the world is there ready to receive your stories. You've just got to persevere and, and try and get them made. Beautiful. Thank you so much. That says, yeah, that's absolutely on the nail. Thank you so much for your time. No and um, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing yeah your projects when they come out. We'll, we'll be no keeping a careful watch. Thanks for your lovely. time. Lovely to right. see you. All the best. Bye. If you're enjoying this content and you're finding it valuable, please subscribe to our Patreon page. Without your contribution, the podcast will come to an end. You can find the link through our website, Productions forward slash podcast or our Instagram page, Film Finance Podcast, and follow the link in the bio. Thanks for listening.